On a recent visit to India, I was privileged to visit the beautiful but abandoned town of Fatipur Sikri. About 30 kilometers outside Agra, south of Delhi, it was built by the greatest of the Mughal emperors, Akbar, who ruled a huge swathe of northern India in fifth, from 1542 to 1605. Akbar, who was of course a Muslim, was attracted from his youth by the mystical aspects of religion and was disturbed by the rigid interpretations and brutal intolerance manifested by his own religious leaders. So during his reign, he set himself the task of establishing a universal religion called Sul al-Kul, which is also translatable as universal peace, based upon the concept of unity between the faiths. At the heart of Fatipur Sikri are two buildings. In Sikri, next to the mosque, there is the lovely white marble tomb of his teacher, Salim Shisti, a member of the Shistiya Sufi order, whose teachings were very much based upon the unity of being, Wahdat al-Wujud. In Fatipur, in the royal palace, there is an exquisite Diwan al-Khas, or chamber of private audience, where Akbar attempted to set up what must be one of the first interfaith dialogues in history. Here, he invited learned men from all the different religions within his kingdom to exchange ideas. At first, it was just his own Sunni ulama, then the Shiites were invited, then Hindus, then Zoroastrians, Jews and Jains, and then from 1579 onwards, they were joined by a series of Jesuits who had been sent to India as missionaries. Contemporary commentators give us some idea of the kind of vision that Akbar had. One wrote that the emperor was convinced that, quote, there are wise men to be found ready at hand in all religions, and men of asceticism and recipients of divine revelation and workers of miracles amongst all nations. Truth is the inhabitant of every place, and how could it be right to consider it as necessarily confined to one religion or creed? Unquote. Another recorded Akbar's own words at the end of one of the debates. Quote, quote, Most persons from intimacy with those who adorn their externals but are inwardly bad, think that spirituality can be obtained by outward semblance and following the letter of Mohammedanism without internal conviction. Hence, by fear and force, we have compelled many believers in the Brahman religion to adopt the faith of our ancestors. Now that the light of truth has taken possession of our soul, it has become clear that in this distressful place of contradictions, that is, in the world, not a single step can be taken without the torch of proof, and only that creed is profitable which is adopted with the approval of wisdom." Unquote. Akbar was a great emperor with a great vision of civilization. He cultivated the arts and set up workshops in painting and enamel work, etc., he built beautiful palaces and mosques. He was benevolent towards his subjects and magnanimous to his enemies. And he adopted other measures in accordance with his vision of universal peace. He ceased to impose extra taxes on his non-Muslim subjects and he was tolerant of their religious practice. Thus at Fatipur there are separate palaces for his Hindu, Muslim and Christian wife and each was allowed to practice her own religion. 
In order that the different religions would understand each other better, he established a bureau of translation and had the sacred books translated into different languages. But it was of no avail. The religious leaders were not interested in dialogue, only conversion, and the people misunderstood Akbar's intentions and thought that he was making himself into a god. The historians have not been kind to him. The general consensus is that his Sul al-Kul was a massive failure and that Akbar went seriously off the rails towards the end of his reign. I don't believe that this can be correct, and I would agree with Boulent Rauf, who wrote in the 1970s, quote, Akbar was not of his time. A mystical way of thought requires spiritually and mentally enlightened media through which to establish an esoteric level in which to flower. The Sufi concept of the all-permeating unity, which is the absolute essence, was beyond the reaches of the general levels of his time. In fact, the idea underlying Fatipur is barely coming into fruition today. Unquote. At some point, therefore, there is a paper to be written about Akbar and his connection with Ibn Arabi, which was a very strong one. But this is the not one I'm going to deliver today, partly because I gave the title before I went to India. <laughs> I bring this account only as my contribution to the main theme of this symposium and as a tribute to the question mark at the end of it. And what struck me during my visit to Fatipur Sikri was the sense of how alive Akbar's vision felt when I was there, how the city still stands as a monument to a continuing possibility for mankind. And this leads to the thought that things do not necessarily have to be judged by their immediate perceived effect in the world at the time. Unified vision necessarily, or spontaneously, as Ibn Arabi says, gives rise to action. And the effect of this action is necessarily to unify, but it stands as its own justification and its own end, inasmuch as it is essentially an action of praise. It was this line of thought that chose me actually to accept to choose the concept of Ihsan as my theme today, because this combines the principles of both vision and action. Although it is in one sense associated with the very highest levels of spiritual realization, it is also a very practical matter which indicates ways of behaving which is possible for anyone to adopt. It is this aspect which I hope to draw out in this talk, because whenever any of these actions are adopted, then there is no doubt that unification is the result. I'm going to make no attempt to address the specific problems of our time, um, but rather I'm going to leave you to make the correlation and to see what difference it would make to the world if people were to actually behave like this. The world is sun is based on the root hasana, meaning to be beautiful, nice or good. The particular form of the verb is causal, so ihsan comes to mean acting beautifully or nicely, doing good. It has a general within, with meaning within Islam of doing everything beautifully, and so it is the basis of the arts and skills such as calligraphy and building. In the religion, it is one of three main aspects, which are Islam, submission, iman, faith, and ihsan, which is actually quite hard to summarize in a single word. 
It's most commonly, has most commonly been translated in, say, translations of the Quran as good works or charity. But in the literature of the mystical tradition, it has also been rendered as virtue, beneficence, excellence, perfection, beauty, beautification, and beauty in action. The most general definition is that probably used by both Morris and Chittick, which is right and beautiful action, which is what I shall use. The connection with vision comes through a well-known tradition of the Prophet Muhammad. It is related that one day when the Prophet was out meeting with people, a man came up to him and asked him about the meaning of Iman, Islam and Ihsan. On the last, the Prophet said that Ihsan is, quote, to worship God as though you see him. And if you don't see him, surely he sees you. Then the man went off and the Prophet said, this is the angel Gabriel who came to teach the people about their religion. The word for religion is deen. For most Muslims, the immediate correlation of this would be the opening verse of the Quran, which is said in the daily prayers, where one praises God as Maliki Yomadin, or the master of the day of judgment, referring to the time when, after death, we will all stand before God to be judged for our deeds. Thus, in the Quran, this, this in the Quran is also the moment when we will actually see God, like the moon in the night when it is full, or the sun when there are no clouds beneath it. Whereas, whereas whilst we are on this world, we are veiled from the vision of the divine light. This is the same, of course, in other traditions. St. Paul rather famously said, referring, I believe, to something very correlatable with the concept of the sun, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see clear. Standing before God in vision is therefore the central image for the Ihsan. In the common interpretation of religion, this reinforces the connection with good deeds, which need to be stacked up so that they outbalance the bad ones when we come to be reckoned. Within the esoteric tradition, the matter is not just of obeying and fearing God, but of loving him and desiring union with him. The word for worship in the Hadith from the root abada also means serve. So, as if to worship him as if you saw him can also be to serve him as if you saw him and can be taken not only to moments of formal worship but to the whole principle of serving God. Thus, within Sufism, it includes the meaning of constant remembrance of God, the practice of his presence at every moment. For Ibn Arabi and his followers, the ultimate aim of the spiritual path is to come to this point of standing in vision before God in, during this life. This is only possible, as we shall see, for those who desire it enough to do what is referred to in the Sufi tradition as die before you die, i.e. relinquish the relative self in the face of the absolute reality. Ibn Arabi makes this aspect explicit in his writings by coming up in his inimitable way with an alternative reading of the Prophet's words. The Iksan, he says, is, quote, to worship God as if you see him, and if you are not, you see him and he sees you, adding, that is, his vision does not occur except through your extinction, fanar, from yourself, unquote. Ibn Arabi specifies the full realization of this state to the singular ones, al-Afrad, who are God's special friends. 
And this is a state which may seem rather out of reach to most people. But the whole beneficence of as if you saw him is that it expresses not only achievement but aspiration. Therefore, anyone who desires closeness and turns their face towards the one reality participates in it. In fact, Sajruddin Konavi tells us in his Fakuk that there are three degrees to the Ihsan, which I would suggest are not really separate stages in the usual sense of the word, but different, ever-deepening understandings of the same principle. The third and highest of these is of actual vision, and the second is the degree of as if you saw him. We will begin our discussion with the first and lowest, in inverted commas, which he defines as, quote, to do what is appropriate, when it is appropriate, in a way that is appropriate. Or for appropriate, one could say necessary, proper, or seemly. This he equates with wisdom, and in particular to the wisdom of the prophet Lachman, which in the Fasus al-Hikam is the wisdom of the Ikhthaniya. Konavi goes on to comment, quote, The person who has wisdom restrains his or herself, and the one who is able to restrain themselves from actions which are not pleasing to God, from teachings which are not beneficial, and from bad opinions and imagination, and who is able to gather in his or herself advice and sincere counselling and the refinements of learning and instruction, is a person who enters into the meaning of this first degree, unquote. In order to understand why this first degree is right and beautiful action, one has to understand that for Ibn Arabi and his followers, beauty is not an added-on aspect of reality, an optional extra that is intrinsic to the divine order. In fact, beauty and its correlative love is the primordial principle of reality, quality of the essence. And the desire of the one all-encompassing reality to see his own beauty reflected in the mirror of the world is the motivating force of creation. Thus, the Fasus al-Hikam begins at the chapter of Adam with the sentence, quote, God wanted to see the essences of his beautiful names, al-Ezmar al-Azma al-Huzna, which are, of course, from the same root Hasana as, as Ihsan, he wanted to see the essences of his beautiful names, whose number is infinite. Or if you like, you can equally say he wanted to see his own essence in one global object, which having been blessed by with existence, summarized the divine order, so that there he could manifest his mystery to himself. For the vision that a being has of himself in himself is not the same as that which another reality procures for him and which he uses for himself as a mirror, unquote. Being the origin of creation, the principle of beauty and the vision of beauty therefore pervades every level of existence, including that of the relative world where it is not always immediately evident. When talking about the spiritual station of the Iksan, Ibn Arabi says, quote, And in this spiritual stage is the knowledge of why it is that some of what appears in the world seems ugly to a particular person when that person regards it as ugly, and knowing which eye it is that a person sees with when they see the whole world as beautiful, 
when they do see that, so that they respond to it spontaneously with right and beautiful actions, ikhsan. Now this knowing is one of the most beautiful and beneficial forms of knowing about the world, and it corresponds to, the, to what some of the theologians say, that there is no actor but God, and all of his acts are beautiful, unquote. Within the context of the unity of being, of course, all action belongs to God in reality. He is the muhsin, or the one who does right and beautiful actions. Doing what is necessary or appropriate is to conform to the divine order. And conformity is always a form of unified action because it acknowledges the reality of one actor. This requires, as Conover says, restraining one's own impulses and one's tendency to follow desires and intentions which are other than God, because these create two wills, two actors, two ends and two desires, etc. Therefore, actions which result from ourselves are mixed. They are partly good and partly bad, whereas aligning oneself with God's order of necessity produces right and beautiful action, because all of God's acts are beautiful. The second degree of the Aksan is you worship or serve him as if you saw him. Sadradin Connolly says of this, quote, this is the advice to visualize the real according to the way that he describes himself in the revealed books and in the practices of the prophets without mixing this with feeble-minded or inferior interpretations and without the interference from the speculative intellect which is not able or sufficient to understand what God intended what, when he gave news of himself. Rather, you should incline towards the examples we have been given and imagine the likeness, tashbi, and participate in the divine qualities, hifat, unquote. One of the meanings of this participation in the divine qualities is the practice of establishing the meaning of the beautiful names in, us, in oneself and acting in accordance with them. As far as Ikhsan is concerned, this is very much to do with coming under and acting according to the gentler names of God, such as mercy, generosity, kindness and forgiveness. It is of course true that the beautiful names include names of coercion, anger and vengeance, etc., and so the divine order includes the possibility of acting in this manner. But we have seen that for Ibn Arabi, the names associated with the aspects of beauty are the most essential and encompassing. And he frequently quotes from the Quran that ultimately God's mercy overrides his anger. So, in practical terms, one of the first duties of Ihsan as an ordinary religious obligation is respect for one's parents. The inner meaning of this is drawn out by Kashani, one of the early commentators on the Fursus, when he says, quote, your parents nurtured you when you were a helpless and weak infant without power or motivation. They were the first locus of manifestation within which such attributes of God as bringing into existence lordship, mercy and kindliness became manifest in relation to you, unquote. Another consequence is the principle of responding to an ugly act with a beautiful one, 
That is, restraining oneself from retaliating at the same level to the unpleasant things that happen to you. Ibn Arabi says in the Futuhat that even though, quote, God has made it permissible for people to recompense the ugly doer with an ugly deed of the same weight, unquote, if people knew the ultimate importance of the matter, quote, they would never recompense someone who performs an ugly act towards them with an ugly act. And you would not see anyone in the cosmos except those who pardon and make reparations. However, the veils upon the insight, the eyes of insight are dense and these veils are nothing but personal desires and the wish to hurry revenge and retribution. Unquote. Repaying bad with good is equivalent to overlooking the offence. And this is right and good action. For it is God, in the end, who overlooks our bad deeds. The first thing mentioned in the chapter on Lokman in the Fasus is the Quranic saying on the mustard seed, which later commentators interpreted to mean that, quote, whoever executes the task, good or bad, will be recompensed according to that action. But the recompense for the good action is necessarily going to happen, whereas the recompense for the bad action may not happen at all if God wills, unquote. In the ordinary way of religion, he sees you, which is the last part, if you remember, of the Ihsan quote, can be taken as a reminder that God knows and remembers everything we do, and this therefore increases fear. But for Ibn Arabi, it has a different tone. In fact, in the passage I've just quoted from the Futuhat, he later develops a lovely little vignette in which God is envisaged um, as portrayed as talking to the recording angels and telling them not to write down our bad deeds immediately, but to wait and see if we repent. And it gives us the very useful information that if we do this within six hours, our ugly acts will not be registered at all. And for Ibn Arabi... <laughs> <laughs> Six hours. And for Ibn Arabi, this is tantamount to them never being taken into account at all. For he says, but which person of faith would allow six hours to go by without asking forgiveness from God? <laughs> this matter of overlooking fault has even more dimensions to it, which rest upon a deeper understanding of Ibn Arabi's concept of unity. Or it might be better to say that they rest upon understanding just how deep and inclusive Ibn Arabi's understanding of the unity between the world and God is. For the world is the manifestation of God, the locus of appearance of his beauty, and in, essential, in its essential reality, it is nothing other than himself. This is true of the world as a whole, which is easy to see in some ways. And it is also true of each thing in the world, which is tied to or immersed in the one reality as its essence and origin. Thus, everything in the world has a faith, waj in the Arabic, which is turned towards God. Faith meaning essential nature. Or, to take the matter to an even deeper level of understanding, Everything in the, in the world is a face of God in that it is the manifestation of his beauty. 
That's the matter of service, serving or worshipping God as if you saw him includes awareness of the fact that he is not only the transcendent reality, Tanzi, whom we shall face when we move into realms which are beyond the world. He is also the imminent reality who is present with us here in the world in everything that we see, hear, taste, think and do. The practice of Iksam, therefore, means serving or worshipping God's faith in all the things of the world, whether they are inanimate or animate. In fact, the category inanimate does not really exist for Ibn Arabi, who says, quote, There is not anything which is not alive, for it is not one of the things if it does not sing God's praises even though we only understand its praise through God revealing it to us. It cannot praise unless it's alive, so everything is alive, unquote. To acknowledge something as God's face does not, of course, mean taking it as an idol and worshipping it as the pagan people did. Although Ibn Arabi has often been accused by detractors of as implying this, Ibn Arabi stands for one God and one reality. But acknowledging his face does mean according all things respect and honour as a locus of manifestation for God's vision. One implication of this is that the essential nature of everything is blameless. Thus, in the Fasus al-Hikam, Ibn Arabi discusses the fact that the Prophet Muhammad said of garlic, it is a plant whose smell I detest, and did not say, I detest it, it. For, he explains, the essence of a thing should not be disliked, only what manifests from it. And he says, quote, insofar it is, as it is divine by origin, it is all sweet-smelling and good. But insofar as it is praiseworthy or blameworthy, it may be good or bad, unquote. Thus, the best way of behaving is to distinguish the sensual nature of a thing from its relative manifestation, and if any blame or criticism in order, is in order, it should be limited to this outer aspect. If this is true of plants, animals, and minerals, it is even more true of human beings who are made in the image of God and therefore have the possibility of becoming the most complete and perfect locus for the divine vision. Therefore, Ibn Arabi argues not only for respect and tolerance towards every human being, but for the overriding importance of the preservation of human life. For whoever destroys the human being destroys that possibility of vision, not only for that person and their descendants, but for God. This matter of the face reveals that acting in a right and beautiful way is not just about behaving outwardly in a certain manner through a kind of imitation. It is also about preference, choosing to acknowledge and to serve God's face in a thing rather than its outward face. And it is this preference for God's face which brings the matter close to actual vision. This is a very specific matter which requires great intensity of concentration, what Ibn Arabi calls iron vision. For as pointed out at the beginning, 
God's face is veiled in this relative world and it is not within the ordinary human possibility to see it before the moment when we stand before him in the garden of paradise. So the matter of as if you saw him does not mean at all to mean worship everything we see as if it was him. This would be polytheism. It is to aim beyond the veils which are what we see with our senses and other faculties and incline towards the essence or heart of the matter. It would seem that as if you saw him indicates that it is by the use of the imaginative faculty that we can achieve this. But Connery makes it clear that this is not what we might ordinarily think of as imagination because this is precisely what fails us. Intellect can never be the means of seeing God because by its very nature it confines and contains the truth in certain forms and being bound by the rules of logic it is what Connery calls insufficient and unable to encompass a reality which contains all the attributes because some of these contradict others. Thus the intellect is able to accept truth in some forms and not others. Similarly, the imagination has a tendency to create fixed images of God which are extensions of our own particularities and preferences so that we come to have fixed, limited beliefs about reality. And this again leads to accepting God in certain images and forms and not in others. Whereas the, for the Akbarian tradition, the touchstone of a person who really knows the truth is that they acknowledge the face of God in everything without exception. The Emperor Akbar, who I quoted earlier, puts this rather well, I think, when he says, to re-quote him, truth is the inhabitant of every place, and how could it be right to consider it as necessarily confined to one religion or creed, unquote. And the only faculty which has the capacity to acknowledge truth in every form is the heart. The heart, as mentioned in the saying, my heavens and my earth cannot contain me, but the heart of my believing servant contains me. The heart can encompass the unlimited, al-mutlaq, whereas the intellect can only encompass the limited al-Qaid. And the action of the heart, which is the seat of love, is to incline towards the object of its love. Thus the practice of Ihsan is more deeply the matter of inclining towards the one reality rather than to other things. So it concerns intention, motivation, the direction of one's desire. Ibn Arabi speaks of it as turning your face towards God. The word that I have translated earlier in Conover's piece as visualize is istahadara from the root hadara, which means to be present. It has meanings like call to mind, evoke, call up or summon. And it refers not to the practice of trying to imagine what God is like, because as we have said, the faculties we have in intellect and imagination can only come up with limited forms. But of keeping him in mind, always in mind, and longing for his presence. And there is a divine promise concerning to this, 
to which Ibn Arabi refers in the chapter of Muhammad, quote, whoever remembers God keeps company with God and God with him, according to the divine saying, I am the companion of the one who remembers me, unquote. And the people who seek God and seek perfection are distinguished by the constancy with which they manage to do this. In terms of practical action, one of the things implied by this matter of inclination is doing things only for the sake of God or for the sake of love or you could say for the sake of beauty, not for any other end, such as rewards or merit on the day of judgment or thanks or even one's own spiritual progress. Jim Morris brings a very lovely new translation from the Quran in relation to this concerning the true servants of God who, quote, for the love of God, provide food to feed the one who is sick, the orphan and the prisoner, saying, quote, we are only feeding you for the face of God, Wajallah. We do not desire from you any reward or thanks, unquote. How are we doing? No. At its highest degree, this turning towards God means choosing his face to the exclusion of all others, even one's own. And this is the state of those in whom, as Ibn Arabi puts it, the desire is really intense, so that they give up their relative selves in the face of the absolute and come to the state of, if you are not, you see him and he sees you. So Sadrav Connolly says of the third and final degree of the Ihsan, quote, this is particular to those servants who are witnesses without existence. One of those who know was asked, do you see your Lord? And they replied, I cannot worship my Lord if I do not see him. And to this there is an indication in the words of the prophet when he said, he has given the delight of my eyes in the prayer. And he said, prayer is light. And therefore, when he used to enter into prayer, he used to look from and see him, just as he would see someone who was in front of him. This state could not be if he was in the company of something other than the prayer. And the meaning of the, this verse in the Surat of Lokman points towards this when he says, and it says, whoever turns his face towards God, he is muqsin, that is, the one who does right and beautiful actions. So he adheres to the strong tie, and to God belongs the final outcome of the matter. Unquote. This reference to being in the company of the prayer is, of course, this matter of seeing God to the exclusion of all else and being in his company. And the delight of the eyes is a reference to the vision of the face of God, who is beauty. And the image here is of the lover achieving his aim and eventually looking upon the face of his beautiful beloved, whom he has loved and desired so passionately and in turn of being seen by his beloved according to you see him and he sees you, unquote. But of course, this is only an imaginative scenario, which is an indication, isharat, towards the real situation, which is that there is only one reality here, one eye, one vision, one actor, 
which is God himself. And Denny Grill, speaking of the station of Ixan, as portrayed in Ibn Arabi's, one of Ibn Arabi's early works, The Twilight of the Stars, says that it is, quote, the replacement of the vision of God which the servant seeks by the vision of God himself and the achievement of the absorption of the contingent being in the real being, unquote. This degree of Ihsan, therefore, constitutes the knowledge of identity between the one who sees and the one who is seen. Not just that there is one actor or one vision, but one essence and one reality. And this is true not just at the degree of transcendence, where it is the knowledge of the people of paradise. As we have already said, him includes the degree of imminence. Therefore, one <coughs> practical consequence of this level of realization is the annihilation of the possibility of other in any real ontological sense. Therefore, the person who you see to be need in, in need of charity is not other than yourself. The person who does you wrong is not other than yourself. The person whose belief is different is not other than yourself. Thus, in all the actions we have mentioned, in the acts of charity, forgiveness and tolerance, as well as in all others, what we are ultimately doing is reenacting the action of God's ikhsan towards ourselves and vice versa. Further, if you are not, you see him and he sees you, is another way of saying that in this place, God sees his own beauty reflected as if in a mirror in the heart of the person. And this is not a static situation like Narcissus gazing upon himself in the pool, but a dynamic one in that it is both the final aim and the origin of creation as Ibn Arabi describes it at the beginning of the Fasus. Thus, the heart of the person who stands before God in vision without existence is the locus for God's creative act of love through which the beautiful names come into expression. And from this point of view, and this is my attempt to answer the conundrum posed by the question of this symposium, unified vision, unified world, question mark. From this point of view, the world is not something other, nor is it a fixed thing or even a thing at all. Rather, it is forever in the making always becoming the locus for the never-ending expression of the beautiful names which are the content of the vision of the one. In short, unified vision leads naturally and spontaneously to unified action and the world is the unified action of God. Thank you. Mm -hmm.